The Lord our God is not far away. The Lord our God comes quickly to our aid to deliver our soul from the threat of the sword and the mouth of the lion. All the ends of the earth shall remember the Lord our God. Even the earth shall bow down. Friends, let us worship God together. fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For the, the Lord, Lord did not hide his face from me, but heard when I cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will pay before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. 
Holy God, as we meet in your name to sing your praises, to hear your word, and to return a portion of what you have given us, we ask that you would bless us. Open our hearts to receive the gifts of this time. O Holy One, you alone may offer us wholeness. You alone are the source of what is good. You alone are our hope, our stay, and our eternal home. Therefore, we thank you and we praise you in the strong name of Jesus Christ. to welcome you to First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, those who are gathered in this space and joining with us online. We recognize that this welcome is extended on behalf of God, and therefore it is extended to everyone with absolutely no qualifying adjectives. We want to invite you, if you're here or joining us online, to pass the friendship pad uh, and to sign in if you'd like online so that we might greet one another by name. You are also invited to join us for a time of fellowship immediately after our worship service uh, in Old Buttonwood Hall. You can find it by just passing through these doors here. I want to highlight a number of opportunities for us to more deeply plug into the life of our community here. First, I want to recognize a couple of upcoming adult education opportunities during the season of Lent, including an opportunity happening right after worship today with the wonderful Dr. Keith Carter. He will be joining us uh, up in the McCall room as we have, we're continuing our important conversations about democracy and our faith uh, and the future of the church. You're also invited to join us for our Lenten lunch, lunchtime Bible study that is starting this Wednesday at 12.15 to 12.45, a quick half-hour Bible study. You're invited to join us during your lunchtime as you're able also want to note the uh, Lenten donations that we will be collecting during this season. You're invited to uh, bring those donations up during the offering or uh, whenever you're able during the season of Lent, or you can use the QR code and donate online. I also want to highlight to you that on next Sunday, March 3rd, we will be hosting student students from Howard University for a dinner. And we'd love to have you join us for that, both in helping us serve the meal and also being in conversation with the students. We want to invite you to RSVP to the office if you'd like to join us for that. I invite you to look at all of the other announcements in your bulletin. And with that, we will continue with our worship together. <clears throat> to enter into confession is to risk honesty with God, with one another, and perhaps even with ourselves. To be honest is to be candid about those areas of our lives in need of God's grace. Indeed, as the epistle tells us, if we say we have no sin, we deceive only ourselves. But our God does not ask for deception from us, but instead openness. So let us open ourselves to the grace of God as we offer our confession before the one who has made us, who knows us, and who loves us, first in unison and then in silence. Let us pray. Holy God, your Son, Jesus, came into the world 
to preach good news to the poor and release to the captives, to heal the sick and bind up the brokenhearted, to dine with outcasts and to forgive sinners. We desire to follow Jesus' example, but sometimes it feels like the gospel demands too much of us. The truth is that we prefer our comfort and security over the transformation and justice. Like the disciples, we have all denied the boundary-crossing ministry of Jesus at some point in order to protect our own skin. Forgive us for the times when we have kept silent when we should have spoken up. Forgive us for when we have prioritized the status quo over the cries of our vulnerable neighbors. Forgive us for all the small and significant ways that we allow injustice to thrive. Strengthen our spirits and give us courage to speak your disruptive truth to power, even now as we continue to pray. the good news. If anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Believe the promise of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven.
first lesson is taken from the Old Testament, from the book of Genesis, the 17th chapter, the first seven verses, and then verses 15 and 16. Listen for the word of God to us this day. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk with me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will make you exceedingly numerous. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You shall be the ancestor of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the ancestor of a multitude of of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your offspring after you throughout their generations, for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you will no longer call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall give rise to nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Here ends the first lesson. Our epistle lesson comes to us today from Paul's letter to the church in Rome, the fourth chapter, verses 13 to 25. For the promise that he would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or his descendants through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. If it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. For this reason, it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his descendants, not only to the adherents to the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham. For he is the father of all of us. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Hoping against hope, he believed that he would become the father of many nations. According to what was said, so numerous shall your descendants be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was already as good as dead, for he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Therefore, his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now the words, it was reckoned to him, were written not for his sake alone, but for ours also. 
it will be reckoned to us who believed in him who raised our Lord Jesus from the dead, who was handed over to death for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. May God bless to our hearing and our understanding this reading of God's holy word. Our gospel lesson for this morning comes from the book of Mark, chapter 8, verses 31 through 38. Listen again for God's word for you. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all of this quite openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Holy God, in the sacredness of this time and place, still our trembling hearts. Quiet every voice within us except your own and speak to us your truth. We pray in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. In May 1951, Sarah Patton Boyle decided she would devote herself to fighting for racial equality in the segregated South, 1951. She would go about this work by creating a letter to the editor campaign to show white Southern support for integration. 
as a white Southern writer herself, Boyle had already attempted to flood various local publications with her personal letters, even signing them with different variations of her own name. But now, now she had an even bigger idea. She decided she would organize white men and women with similar views on racial equality into a letter-writing brigade. She scoured newspapers for letters of support for integration and then encouraged their authors to write more. She attempted to recruit sympathetic friends and acquaintances and friends of friends to write on this behalf of this project. If they were daunted by the thought of writing a letter of their own, Boyle offered to write initial drafts for them and then attached their names. She even convinced a brand new contact to write and mail letters to publications from his deathbed. That is how eager and excited she was for this work. Eventually, she recruited ghostwriters and created an elaborate chart that tracked letter drafters and signatories and newspapers. And in the end, Boyle wrote hundreds of articles and speeches imploring immediate integration in Philadelphia. Uh, sorry, in Virginia. She even published a memoir entitled The Desegregated Heart, a Virginian Stand in a Time of Transition. I first learned about Sarah Patton Boyle in a class at Duke Divinity School, and my professor, Dr. Lauren Winner, concluded that Boyle believed, it seems, that she could ghostwrite the South into integration. Boyle's efforts came at a cost, of course. For most of the 1950s, former friends avoided eye contact with her. She was ostracized from many social groups. After publishing an article entitled, Southerners Will Like Integration, the KKK burned a cross on her front lawn and sent an ambulance to her house in the middle of the night with a threatening message. But still she pressed on, believing that her small army of writers would give the confidence that other white Virginians needed to speak out in support of integration. In one of her correspondences with a local newspaper editor, she insisted that the conspiracy of silence is creating far more trouble than it is averting. As a daughter of an Episcopal priest and a woman of deep faith, her obsessive commitment to racial desegregation became for her a kind of all-consuming holy work. Midway, through our Gospel of Mark, we find Jesus fiercely committed to his own all-consuming, holy work of preaching the Gospel, even under the threat of rejection and harm. He had already been condemned by religious leaders for doing things like healing on the Sabbath, for going against religious purity laws, for offering a paralytic man forgiveness of his sins. He had been belittled and mocked by the people in his hometown of Nazareth. He had even heard about the brutal death of John the Baptist, a fellow preacher of God like himself. But here in this chapter 8, for the first time in Mark's gospel, Jesus speaks openly about his impending demise. 
the threats of rejection and harm become more acutely real when Jesus teaches his disciples that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering. It is necessary that he be rejected by the elders, the priests, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Now, we do not know why Peter chooses to rebuke Jesus for naming the dangers that await him. Perhaps Peter sees this as a kind of test similar to Jesus's question from only a few verses earlier, who do you say that I am? Or perhaps Peter is naive to the potential risks that threaten Jesus for proclaiming and preaching the gospel. Perhaps Peter cared so much about Jesus that he could not possibly bear to hear about his harm, or perhaps Peter sees in this moment an opportunity to gain power, respect, and authority among the disciples by correcting their leader. Whatever Peter's motivation may be, Jesus quickly admonishes him for his short-sightedness and then proceeds to explain to all of his followers how they must all endure rejection and potential harm for Jesus' sake. And now it's left up to us to interpret what it means to, quote, deny ourselves and, quote, take up our crosses and follow him in our world today. I'm going to be honest with you. I was not thrilled when I found that this was the lectionary passage for today. I shuddered at this verse, at this passage, because I have seen how these verses about denying yourself have been used to promote harmful ascetic practices and assert that there is something inherently wrong with the self that needs to be denied and diminished. I shuddered because I I know that this notion of taking up your cross has been used to justify obedience to unjust and oppressive systems. I shuddered at this passage until I read this commentary by a brilliant New Testament professor by the name of Reverend Dr. Brian Blunt. Perhaps you've heard of him. I'm new to him. And I remembered, we are dealing with the Gospel of Mark here. A gospel that is much more concerned with the socio-political realities of the day than it is with the spiritual notions of sin and salvation. Dr. Blunt writes this, Mark narrates, and his Jesus character anticipates throughout the first half of the gospel, that his preaching provokes a hostile response from those characterized as institutional leaders. As Mark presents it, then, Jesus' plight is not an act of redemptive, vicarious suffering, which atones for the sins of the world, but a socially and politically motivated response by a leadership bent on halting his transformative preaching ministry. Which is to say, according to the Gospel of Mark, the Son of Man must undergo great suffering, not as an atoning sacrifice, but rather because suffering is to be expected as a boundary-trespassing preacher. This is what we do to profit. By teaching that he must, that it is necessary that he suffer and die, he is speaking about the inevitability of suffering in his context. 
Now, Matthew and Luke's versions of the story may have more soteriological bent to them, but not in Mark. In fact, salvation in Mark's version is not found in Jesus' death, but as Dr. Blunt explains, salvation occurs as a result of holding fast to Jesus' preaching tactics. We are saved by the preaching God's truth. And also, suffering is inevitable when we preach God's truth. Our passage today holds these realities in tension. Therefore, to deny ourselves, to pick up our crosses in the Gospel of Mark, is first and foremost an invitation to set aside our own personal agendas and to take on Jesus' trespassing preaching ministry, whatever may come. Our suffering, our martyrdom, are not the goal of the Gospel. Revealing God's transformative ministry, God's transformative kingdom on earth has always been the goal of the gospel, and Jesus' boundary-breaking preaching is the means of reaching that goal. I am delighted that I have found an exegetical workaround that frees me from having to consider all notions of selfhood and personal denial in this sermon. Baron will pick that up next year for us. Sure. There's a way that we can grapple with the difficulties of this text, but the reality is that the message that Mark is giving us is just as unsettling. The message that we must preach the gospel at all costs. And sure, there are plenty of mainline Protestant ecumenical pastors who will tell you that they aren't afraid of preaching the gospel. But have they ever had to preach a gospel that cost them relationships, that cost them social status, that cost them financial stability, that cost them their safety? Again, personal suffering is not the goal of the gospel, but in preaching the gospel, we are often confronted with resistance and loss. In the face of looming justice issues and conflicts with entrenched power, we may opt to remain silent and comfortable and secure. Even the disciples, after being told that they need to set aside their personal agendas and follow Jesus completely, even the 12 of them absurdly solicit Jesus for special privileges. Peter denies not himself, but Jesus three times. Judas sells out Jesus for a small personal profit. As theologian Chet Myers explains, Every one of them, it seems, has their price. Every one of them has their price. And maybe the same can be said of us. Last year, a, a filmmaker named Carolyn Crowder released a documentary entitled At the River, which explores the response of Southern Presbyterian pastors to segregation and white supremacy in their congregations in the 1950s and 1960s. While most of the pastors at the time opted to not stir the waters in their communities by speaking out, a, a few of them did preach a gospel of desegregation, often at great personal cost. Some lost job opportunities by speaking their truth. Some attempted to work within their communities to educate them all of them experienced resistance and rejection in some form. 
Boyle's story and these Presbyterian pastors' stories make me wonder what boundary trespassing words of truth we may be feeling called to preach these days. I wonder what in our own personal agendas may feel too valuable for us to set aside. What's our own cost? How far is too far to go for the gospel? I don't know about you, but after enduring a global pandemic and major life transitions over the past few years, I'm not especially looking for a Sarah Patton Boyle level of discomfort in my life. And yet, here's this lectionary passage staring at me in the face, presenting an image of a provocative, transformative Jesus who tells me to follow him and his ways. I cannot deny the call to tell the truth confronts me loudly every day. Before we conclude, I, I want to briefly return to the story of Sarah Patton Boyle. I, I had never heard of Boyle until recently. Learned in the 9 o'clock that no one else had. I'm not sure if anyone in this space had heard of her before. Even though Dr. King mentions her by name, in his letter from a Birmingham jail. And yet she's largely unknown. He lists Boyle among five other white Southern siblings who, quote, have written about our struggle in eloquent and prophetic terms. Boyle devotedly committed herself to integration efforts, working on average 18 hours a day, writing, traveling, and speaking. And while she received a few accolades. Many of them came after her death, such as a plaque on a bridge in Charlottesville, Virginia. As my professor, Dr. Winner, suggests, perhaps she's not remembered very much because in the end, Boyle did not accomplish very much. She did not turn the tide on desegregation in the South through her guerrilla marketing letter writing campaign. If anything, her efforts exhausted her. They left her burnt out, divorced, and in need of relocation by the late 1950s. We bring up Boyle's limited successes not as a means of belittling her efforts or of judging her or any person by what they achieve. Instead, we point to her fierce commitment to the work to which she is called even in the face of loss and rejection, even in the face of limited achievement. She gave so much of herself to this obsessive pursuit of this one thing. Her life begs the questions, what are we willing to go all in for? What are we willing to look like a fool for? Are we willing to go all in to look like a fool for environmental conservation? for gender-affirming medical care, for female bodily autonomy? Are we willing to go all in for children in, in Congo, in, in, in Gaza, in US, U.S. detention centers? Are we willing to look like a fool for creating affordable housing in our neighborhoods, even to the detriment of our own homes? I look at Sarah Patton Doyle's life, and, and truly, it, it scares me. The thought that I could devote my entire existence to pastoral and justice work to which I feel called and ultimately feel 
as though I don't have much to show for it? Perhaps Boyle's story and our Bible lesson for today are asking us to consider how far we will go for what is right. What are we willing to give up? What crosses are we willing to bear? And if we knew that in the end, our efforts would not amount to much, would we still do them anyway? Jesus embraced the foolishness of the gospel, the foolishness of the cross. Can we not do the same? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Having heard the word of God, let us respond with our own words as we affirm our faith with words from the Confession of 1967. God's sovereign love is a mystery beyond the reach of the human mind. Human thought ascribes to God superlatives of power, wisdom, and goodness. But God reveals divine love in Jesus Christ by showing power in the form of a servant, wisdom in the folly of the cross, and goodness in receiving sinful men and women. The power of God's love in Christ to transform the world discloses that the Redeemer is the Lord and Creator who made all things to serve the purpose of God's love. The theologian Karl Barth is attributed with having said, once we acknowledge that Christ is Lord, all the rest of life, is stewardship. If indeed Christ is Lord of our lives, then we are called wisely to use what God has given us and generously to share of the bounty we have received. However you choose to give, when we are faithful stewards of our time, our treasure, and our prayers, it is God who is served. Let us now return our offerings.
all that we have, you call us to face into the necessity of what life and faith demand from us. And as we return our offerings to you, our prayer is simple, that you would bless these gifts and use them, and that in our turn, we also might be blessed by the work of your reign among us. Through Christ our Lord and for his sake, we make all our prayers. Amen. Let us continue to unite our hearts and minds in prayer. Holy God, as we turn our prayers to you, we ask that you would our turn, that you would turn our hearts even more to the world you have made and loved. Enable us to see what you would have us do and be. And when we have seen, enable us to act. Help us to realize that when we love and when we fail to love, our actions matter. Help us to realize our actions matter when we pray or when we fail to pray for a world that needs prayer. Keep us mindful of that which we can do and then help us to do it. And so we come to pray knowing that you will hear us and that you will act and that you will call us to act. We pray for the world that you have made and called good. Help us to know our place in it, to occupy no more space and take no more resource than is our share. Guide our leaders to generosity so that others may have what is theirs. Help us all to live faithfully with abundance so that others may have sufficiency. We offer particular prayers today for the people of Ukraine, for their president and government. We pray for Gaza and Israel, for those who are held hostage, and for those who are now refugees. Grant safety to those who live in broken places, O God, even as you bind up the brokenhearted and give hope to those who have lost everything, indeed those who have lost their loved ones. And we pray, as you taught us, even for aggressors, that they would seek to abandon the ways of war and that their peaceful wishes would turn their people's hearts. We pray for this community where we live, just as you called your people in ancient times to be a light to the nations, you call us still to witness to your goodness, mercy, and love to all people and to do it with particularity in the places where we live and work. Make us a light to those around us. Make us grace-giving people. To that end, we pray for those who are shut out, those who are forced to the margins, for the sick and the aged, for those who experience mental distress and illness, for those who experience homelessness, for those who suffer from oppression, 
from depression and addiction. We offer to your care all who stand in need of an extra measure of your comfort, particularly the victims of violence and gun violence in particular. Holy God, open our eyes to the hurt of the world. And when we see, may we seek to overwhelm it with your love. And so we pray finally for those who don't look like ourselves and don't act like us, maybe even make us uncomfortable. Help us to persevere in prayer for them and help us to be transformed by their prayers for us and our witness. We pray all these things in the name of the one who lived holy for you and holy for humanity. Your love incarnate, our Lord Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
friends, the good news and the challenge of the gospel this day is that we must preach the gospel no matter the cost. Whatever loss or rejection or limited achievement we may face. This is a challenging word that we are charged to wrestle with this day. As we strive to go out and share this good news with others, I charge you, friend, to be of good courage, to hold fast unto all that is good, render unto no one evil for evil, strengthen the faint-hearted, support the weak, help the afflicted, and honor all of God's people, even as you love and serve the Lord. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the sweet communion of the Holy Spirit be with you this day and every day.